All right, good morning again. Good to see you guys. If you were here last week, I want to give a shout out to Pastor Tracy Simmons from Christ Community Church. He and I had the chance last week to do a pulpit swap. Tracy's become a really good friend of mine, and uh, we have some vision as elders to try to get better connected to some of the other churches in town that are really like-minded and, and to be better partners maybe than we've been in the past few years. And so Sunday was a great example for Tracy and I, who believe that's important for our congregations to lead by example. And so I had a really good time over at Christ Community. I watched his sermon last week. He did a great job of interacting with and treating Exodus 16. And so today we will begin Exodus 17. You guys can head that direction in your Bible. I would appreciate it. While you go there, I have a short disclaimer for you before we jump into the text. I am not going to be able to make it through the entirety of chapter 17 today. If you've been here with us through 2021, you'll remember that when we arrived in Exodus 6, we had a similar issue where I had already planned out the sermon series and the pacing at which we would need to move. And because we couldn't get to 100% of the verses that we needed to cover on Sunday morning, I was able to record an additional uh, bit of sermon audio, almost like a second bonus sermon, if you want to see it in a positive light. Uh, so I'm going to do that again this week. You can expect around Thursday morning, both on our website and if you are subscribed to our um, sermon audio podcast, for an additional episode to drop in dealing with Israel's encounter with the Amalekites. It's the first time that they have a battle since they left Egypt. It begins in verse 8 of this chapter. We just aren't going to make it. There's so much historical significance to what's going on there, the unique way that God uses Moses holding up God's staff. I didn't want to speed talk through that the last 10 minutes of this sermon. So just be looking for that on Thursday. That'll catch you up all the way, and we'll begin verse 1 of chapter 18 next week. So let's look at Exodus 17. We're going to read together now uh, verses 1 through 4 to start this morning. All of the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of Yahweh, and they camped at Rephidim. But there was no water there for the people to drink. And therefore the people quarreled with Moses. They said to him, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test Yahweh? There's no real response here. They just keep arguing with him in verse 3. But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses, and they said this, why did you bring us up out of Egypt? Did you bring us here to kill us and to kill our children and to kill our livestock with thirst? And so Moses cried to Yahweh, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. So surprise, surprise, the Israelites are whining again. Are you sick of this yet? Are you tired of it? I am. It's a little bit repetitive. It's, it's annoying to me. They've seen God do stuff that I, I feel like I would pay all the money that I have to witness in person one time, to not just have seen a miracle once, but to be living in the middle of a miracle every day. If you remember the last chapter that we read that Pastor Tracy preached last week, they see evidence of God every morning and every evening. When God sends quail meat from heaven in the nighttime for dinner, when he puts the manna on the ground in the morning, they see the significance of God's character and who he is. And more than that, if we look back at the Red Sea crossing or even the way that our God toppled the gods of Egypt in those kind of seven or eight chapters in the beginning of Exodus, each of those is a clear example of the divine looking down on people and actually interacting with them which is the thing that we want, right? That's when we pray, we're asking God to do that, to intervene on our behalf, to make a change in the world that we can't effect on our own. And these people have it. They're getting it every day, twice a day, 
and yet they get thirsty in the desert, and they go after God's leader again. They attack him verbally, and then he turns to God and says, I can't do it with these people anymore. Moses, the great leader, several months into his journey, is beginning to show some signs of humanity, which eventually comes for all of us, regardless of how much time we spend with the Lord or not. He reaches his own end. Now, to me, the nature of the path that they've taken, you may remember a couple weeks ago we looked at a map, and I don't have time to show it to you this morning, but the nature of the way that God has taken his people is really specific. When he set them free, probably from the city of Pyramses in the northeastern element of the Nile River Delta, um, he took them south and east instead of north and east. The journey northeast would have taken them maybe a week on foot, maybe two as slow as they were moving with a million and a half people in their caravan. But to go southeast makes their journey several months longer than it necessarily has to be in order to keep God's people away from the war that's waiting for them. If they go northeast, they're going to run across one of the better equipped military organization, tribe, civilizations in the known world at that time. So God brings them southeast, and he brings them into a place that's called the wilderness, is probably how your Bible translates it. If you're in the ESV, that's the word that the translators use. But you might better think of it as a desert. When we think wilderness, we kind of think Anchorage wilderness, and even if it's really cold here, there's almost always some water somewhere that you can find, even if it's snow that you need to chew up and swallow. I don't even know if that's good etiquette. Maybe don't do that. But there's some water out there that you could get to. In the desert around Sinai, this doesn't exist. Basically, Mount Sinai is so high, you can think of Denali in Alaska, that the foothills of Sinai stretch across this entire peninsula. To some degree, God's people are already at his mountain, but they just haven't gotten close to the top yet. And so they're going to slowly travel around that mountain, kind of gaining elevation over time across the next couple of months. And I think that all the steps of that are on purpose. I think God has led them in a meaningful way. Each of the places he's told them to go has been not an accident, not just him drawing a map on a piece of stone like Old Testament map quest and giving it to Moses and saying, here, use this and find your way to the promised land. According to the first verse that we just read, Yahweh is leading his people by his own commandments. The pillar of fire is still there. The pillar of cloud is still there. They're still seeing him in the morning and the evening as he provides food for them. So I believe that God brought them to the place that they will eventually name Massah and Meribah. They give it two negative names. Moses does because of how God's people grumble. I think he brought them there on purpose. And I think his purpose in bringing them there was this, to allow their own self-sufficiency to run out for them to lose their sense of agency, for their strength of will to hit empty on the fuel gauge, and for them to turn away from themselves and to something. Now, in a perfect world, without sin, God's people hit a wall and they turn to God every time. Resistance brings them to a place of repentance. They say to God, God, we need you, we need your help, we can't do this on our own. But in this world, which is the same world that you and I live in, when humans begin to feel stress, sometimes they just double down on their bad ideas. They dig more deeply into their sense of self-sufficiency, even though they can't affect any real change in their lives. In Exodus 17, when God puts the squeeze on Israel by putting them in the wilderness of sin, what he squeezes out of them is selfishness. And that's the nature of stress. When we come under stress, what's inside makes its way outside eventually, in outbursts and anger in our attitude, if it's negative. Now, if there's life inside of us, again, we meet that wall and repentance leads us back to the Lord. That's the way people who are following Jesus ought to live. But the people of Israel are so new at this thing, their hearts still haven't totally been transformed. These people are not just self-centered, which is a concept that you're probably familiar with. When a person thinks that they're the most important thing in the room, they think that all of life is about them. A deeper and more insidious version of selfishness is to be self-centric. So not self-centered, 
That's sort of the way that we all are naturally. Self-centricity doesn't just mean I think I'm the most important. It means that my life puts me in orbit around my own ego. It's a much stronger sense of selfishness. It's an identity level kind of selfishness. I am the most important. I am divine in my own eyes. I am God. If, if everybody on the planet decided together to elevate me to the highest position of authority, that would be right of them to do. That's self-centricity. And none of us would probably admit that, but some of us, the bent of our lives is that way. These people are not just obsessed with themselves. They believe that they can provide for their own needs and that if they can't, the people who failed them are wrong and should be put on trial. That's the attitude toward God. When Moses says, why do you test Yahweh? The word test means try him. Why do you put him on the stand? Why would you accuse him of something this severe? Practically, this is totally insane for God's people to do. It would be like if your phone was dying plugging a cable into it and then trying to find a way to plug that same cable back into your phone, like trying to charge your phone from your own phone. It doesn't even make any sense. Like I say that sentence in English and it takes you less than one second to dismiss that as an absurd concept. Yet in Exodus 17, God is walking among his people. He's present with them. And all he sees are these people reaching the end of themselves. Their spiritual battery is hitting zero. And they're trying to plug back into their own power to recharge somehow. They're trying to lean on their own ability and understanding to find the thing that they think their life is lacking. And in response to that, when they're unable to do it, they have the audacity to yell at Yahweh about how they feel, to accuse him of something. And maybe that feels too strong to you, right? In Moses' account, Moses uses the words quarreling, grumbling, which sounds a little bit more like the attitude of a person who maybe accidentally took home the wrong to-go order from a restaurant, right? Not the end of the day. Uh, I ordered a sandwich, but now I have soup, and I'm going to grumble about that. You and I have maybe a different understanding of grumbling than the Bible does. The severity of grumbling, the severity of complaining is such that God will enter into a particular moment of judgment with his people. That's what we're about to read beginning in verse 5. And because the severity of his judgment is harsh, we can read back out of that that the severity of God's people's grumbling is significant. It's a big deal to them. Grumbling often sounds harmless to you and I. It sounds quiet. It sounds subtle. It sounds maybe even understandable or justifiable if we've had a bad day. Oftentimes in our moralistic, therapeutic sort of Christian subculture, we label grumbling as venting, and that makes it okay. That's sort of a more polite way to grumble, is to just say to another person, I want to speak without accountability for a brief amount of time, which is something that doesn't seem to exist in God's economy. But we do it. And what I want you to understand is grumbling is toxic, as in like poisonous. It's that big of a deal. All grumbling is toxic. All complaining is toxic. God's response and judgment against these things is severe, which again communicates to us the degree of the severity of the toxicity of the grumbling itself. Two reasons that grumbling is a big deal. I want to get practical with you for just a second. First, grumbling propagates. I tried to alliterate these two just to help you remember them, so I kind of used bigger words, but what I mean is grumbling is contagious. It's infectious. You don't grumble alone. You can pray by yourself to God and tell him how you feel, and that would be right and appropriate, but you go to other people to share grievances that you have no intention of dealing with. You call somebody, you text somebody, the comments on most Facebook posts devolve into this eventually where people begin to take ad hominem pot shots at the character of someone instead of even dealing with the issue itself. We find one another and we share how negative we feel. We spread discontent. And then in response, we tend to reinforce one another's complaints. If you look back at verse 4 of this story, even Moses, God's leader, seems to have caught the grumbling bug to some degree. 
God's people have been complaining and, and just nipping at him for so long that when he finally turns to Yahweh, he's like, what am I supposed to do with them? They're about to stone me, God. Can you believe that? Now, they didn't ever say that they were going to stone him. That's what grumbling looks like. It's taking an action that we can quantify and taking it to its extreme and then responding to that extreme. It's not giving somebody the benefit of the doubt. It's not allowing them room to be wrong or, or insufficient or weak. It's saying, well, if you did that, then that means this, and I can't believe you would mean that to me. And then you go tell somebody else about it. You don't even tell the person that's wronged you. So grumbling propagates. It spreads. And here's why that's bad, because grumbling petrifies. The Bible uses the language of stone to identify with the heart of a person that is resistant to God. A heart of stone. In our journey through Exodus, as we've looked at the Pharaoh's life, the Bible has described him as hard-hearted. Same idea. But there's a hardness. There's a shell. There's an armor here that allows a person to resist the movement and the will of God. Grumbling comes from a heart posture that believes that it's okay to put God to the test, to serve him papers, to press charges against him. A grumbling heart criticizes God. It questions his goodness. It scrutinizes him under the microscope of a humanist worldview. In other words, when I have a grumbling spirit, I measure God's goodness by how much he does for me. A grumbling spirit asks questions like, did I get what I want from God? Do I feel important among God's people? Am I being fulfilled? Am I happy? Is there someone else who seems to be getting all of God's good breaks or who seems to be getting all of the attention and time of church leaders or who just seems happier than me? A grumbling spirit cannot celebrate with anybody else. It interprets the good in other people's lives as lack in its own life. If so, if that's the spirit that I have and those are the kinds of questions I'm using to navigate the world, then you better believe I'm going to find somebody who agrees with me or who is too much of a coward to tell me the truth, frankly, and I'm going to verbally unload on God or on God's people. Now, that seems like a little bit bigger deal than quarreling, right? Quarreling sounds like how third graders resolve an argument in, over like, who gets to get, use the good scissors at school. That's a quarrel. But what we're discussing here is a state of heart. It's a posture that God's people have taken on because of their circumstances and because they don't trust him. Mentally, they can't deny that he's there, right? They're living in this miracle. Every 12 hours, they're getting more evidence that God is still with them. But their hearts are not on board. There's no trust there. They don't really believe in here and the part of them that navigates life and makes decisions. Now, if you don't believe me and you think I'm taking this out of context, that's fine. You can just add this sermon to your list of complaints about me. And you can grumble to somebody about that this week if you want to. Maybe God will convict you. But before you dismiss the toxicity of grumbling, I want to allow the Bible to speak for itself a little bit more. Because there's a really interesting chain reaction that happens here between some verses that interpret what's going on in Exodus 17. Two passages in specificity that I want to share with you. We'll have them on the screen for you. First is Psalm 95. In the New Testament, there's a passage that we're going to read in a minute that tells us that Psalm 95 is actually authored by the Holy Spirit, by God himself which is a new concept for me in the last couple of weeks in studying to prepare. I'll just be honest with you. Nobody ever told me. I knew the Psalms were inspired, but the Bible gives God credit for actually penning these words. This is his perspective. He says this in Psalm 95, verse 8. <clears throat> Excuse me. He says, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah. That's this story in Exodus 17. This is Meribah, where God's people are complaining about the water. As on the day at Massah, same place, in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. God's perspective is, I gave them the evidence they needed. It wasn't sufficient to reach their hearts. They were still willing to test me. 
They were still willing to try to figure me out or accuse me or hold me accountable for a thing that I never did. Psalm 95 is God writing down his perspective on the grumbling of the people of Israel in Exodus 17. His perspective is that their grumbling was just the outward expression of testing God. It was the actions of a people who did not trust him. The state of their hearts indicates the kind of hardness, the kind of petrification that grumbling brings about. Now in the New Testament, so we're going to go one more level down the rabbit hole here. This is sort of like Bible inception today. Hebrews 3 quotes Psalm 95, which is in response to Exodus 17. Are you still with me? In Hebrews 3, the author of Hebrews quotes the psalm, the portion that we just read in verses 10 and 11, and then has this to say in response to how God's people hardened their hearts against him. The author says in verse 12 of Hebrews 3, Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil or unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened, hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? So if I can connect these three dots for you. Hebrews 3, Psalm 95, Exodus 17. The grumbling of Israel was the expression of a heart that was evil because that heart did not believe. And we aren't talking about the scientific method, right? I believe that it's possible or even that it may have happened sometime to somebody. That's mental assent. That's not what the Bible is looking for. The Bible is describing the unbelief of the heart, the trustlessness of the human heart, the flightiness of the human heart, the self-centered timidity that causes us to scatter like cockroaches when life gets hard. When we are self-orbiting, when we are egocentric, we grumble about God's movement in our life, but we don't stay there for long. That's just the beginning gets worse for us. According to Hebrews, an unbelieving heart leads you to unsink yourself with God. Did you catch the coaching that the writer of Hebrews gave us in verse 13? The actionable command is to exhort one another. What is the opposite of exhortation? It's grumbling. Do you understand here what the solution is? Your words, the way that you process and communicate with other people, will have a direct impact on the state of their inner person. It's one of the great mysteries of what it means to be a human being. You can do very little to change your own heart, but you have immense influence on the hearts of the people around you. The way that you speak about God, the way that you speak about his church, your self-discipline, your ability to take your complaints to the person you are upset with instead of just venting it off, this is your responsibility. If we are grumbling, then we are participating in, contributing to, moving people away from God. But if we are exhorting them, the opposite is true. Exhortation is a remedy to self-orbiting selfishness, and so we can help each other. We can influence one another either toward or away from trust in God. But what we cannot ultimately do, okay, and this is what brings us down to God's solution, what we cannot ultimately do is actually change each other's circumstances. You can be present for somebody in in a season that's difficult for them, You can be a listening ear, you can be a partner with them as they pray, as they work and contend in God's presence for what's true and right, as they ask him to work on their heart. You should do that. You should bear their burdens with them. But you can't actually reach into their life and divinely press a button or pull a lever that changes anything of significance at all. That is God's business. And so though God's people are in a grumbling state, it would be short-sighted of me to tell you that the remedy to their grumbling is one or two of them to become encouragers and start leaving sticky notes on everybody's tents at night about how God is great and he brought them to the Red Sea. That wouldn't hurt them, but it doesn't reach their hearts. 
God has to do something for them, and that's what he's going to do beginning in verse 5. Here's God's response to Moses. He says to Moses, pass on before the people, so walk through the whole camp, and as you go, take with you some of the elders of Israel. In other words, gather together a group of witnesses. God wants his people to see what's going to happen next. They need another demonstration, if you can believe that. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. It's the end of verse 5. If you don't remember or you weren't here when we processed through the plagues, each of those plagues was judgment. So this staff represents judgment. It is like a judge's gavel. Moses held it up, waved it around, struck it against the water. He's done lots of stuff with it that God's told him to do. Each time he's done that, judgment has come upon God's enemies in response. Take the staff with you and go. Verse 6, behold, this is God still speaking for himself. He says, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. Horeb, interestingly, is the foothills of Mount Sinai, and it's the place, probably, I don't know, four or five hundred square miles, but it's the place where God met Moses in Exodus 3 at the burning bush. So it might seem vague to you and I that God tells Moses to go to the rock at Horeb. I think Moses knows exactly which rock God is talking about. He says, go there, and then when you get there, in front of the elders of Israel, you will, I'm not asking, you will, you will strike the rock. Then water will come out of it and the people will drink. And so Moses did so, because he's smart. And in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massah, which means quarreling, and Meribah, which means grumbling, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested Yahweh, saying, is Yahweh among us or not? Now, if I can, I just want to make a quick plug for the book study that our kids' ministry is doing right now. I promise this matters. This isn't just a random commercial in the middle of my sermon. But we're reading a book called Show Them Jesus. And the reason that we need a book like this, the reason that we need to dig into a book that's about how to demonstrate Jesus to children from the whole of Scripture is passages like this, like Exodus 17. What I'm going to highlight for you in the remainder of our time together today is really, truly incredible to me. I think it may revolutionize your understanding of the way that Yahweh interacts with his people in the Old Testament because you probably have been influenced to some degree to believe that the God of the Old Testament is mean, angry, and far away, and the God of the New Testament is nice and close by and gives us the things that we want. He's the same. And the only way that I can demonstrate that to you is I have to help you see the Jesus of the New Testament, the Christ, the Son of God, dwelling among his people, sacrificially taking on their behalf what they deserve. I've got to help you see that in this passage. It would be easy for me to make some kind of thin application about prayer or trusting church leaders, but Jesus is in this passage, and if I give you anything less than him, then you guys should demand your money back at the end of this sermon. Okay, so here's the scene. God's people are judging him. That's what's happening here. They're calling him to account, and he's responding by allowing them to do that. Imagine a courtroom in your mind. The defendant is God, and he's alone. He has no representation. He's just himself. He doesn't need anybody's help. And he's actually on the stand in this moment. He's being cross-examined by the plaintiff, which would be the elders representing the people of Israel. They are accusing God of neglecting them, not listening to them, not caring about them. That's the state of their heart. And then in between, God and God's people is Moses, the worst-equipped judge in human history. He has to decide, are the accusations of God's people right or wrong? Is God guilty or not? How do I know that Moses is the judge? He's holding the gavel. 
God told him to go get it out of his tent. He said, take the staff with you with which you struck the Nile, the staff of judgment against sin. Bring it into this courtroom scene, and then I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. You're going to bring the gavel down. I'm going to get ahead of myself too far. In verse 6, Yahweh says, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. Moses is standing there. Yahweh elders Moses. And we have to ask ourselves, before that gavel comes down, it's kind of like we're watching Judge Judy, right? We're listening to testimony. We have to figure out whose side are we really on here? Who's going to get justice? Who's really guilty here? It's Israel. If you're as guilty as Israel is, you don't take anybody to court because you don't want to be in a courtroom. You don't want to be anywhere close to anybody who wields the law because if you come into that building, they're going to slap warrants on you and serve papers to you and you're going to wind up in a cell before you ever even make it into the courtroom to stand trial. That's how guilty they are. Who is innocent? Yahweh is innocent. He's done nothing wrong. All he's done, if he's done anything, is lead his people intimately and personally every step of the way. Can you imagine experiencing the provision of God every 12 hours like clockwork for 40 years of your life? He's done nothing wrong. But he submits to this sham trial. At the end of the trial, God should be vindicated, right? If this is a fair trial and he's innocent and God's people are guilty, there's no outcome in which God would have to face judgment because he's innocent. And also, who's going to judge God? Who can even do that? But instead of defending himself, Yahweh's only words in this courtroom scene are to Moses. And he says, strike the rock. The rock where God is standing. Standing, literally standing. I don't know if he's standing in the form of a pillar of cloud and fire. I don't know if he's in somewhat, to some degree, in human form, in the person of the Son, the second person of the Trinity. The Bible has categories for this. Maybe he's invisible and Moses can't even see him. But the elders are behind Moses. Moses stands in front of this rock, which is significantly representative of the most important spiritual moment Moses has ever had. When God called him out and shared his own name, and God says, drop the gavel on me. Strike the rock where I am standing and judge me. And Moses does it, which is a testament to his allegiance to Yahweh. Moses brings the staff down. Yahweh takes the judgment his people deserve. And as a result, they get exactly what they need. By Yahweh taking the judgment of his own people's wickedness, water flows and they all drink, and they live, and they survive. Spiritually, they receive forgiveness from him, mercy from him. It's not what they deserve. Maybe this seems like a small moment in the story of Scripture, but what I can tell you is this is a life-changing moment for Moses. It changes his perspective on who Yahweh is permanently. If you fast forward to the book of Deuteronomy, which is two books later from Exodus, at the very end of that book, Moses dies. Because of a mistake he makes in the book of Numbers, another scene where he's supposed to strike a rock and bring water out, he gets angry, hits the rock twice, and God says, you made a fool of me, so you're not going to go into the promised land. I'll let you see it, climb a mountain, you can look across the river and see it, but you're going to die on that mountain. Before Moses goes up, he sings a song to his people. He's become sort of an artist at this point in his life. And in that song, four times in Deuteronomy 32, he refers to Yahweh as the rock. And he's not thinking Dwayne Johnson, okay? He's thinking our living God, the rock. This is the first and most significant instance in Moses' life when Yahweh is personified by a rock. He sees the connection there. This is God himself showing up personally 
and taking on this discipline. If I can fast forward you even farther into the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul is writing to a group of believers in Corinth, and the whole chapter is basically the story of the Exodus and how God's people respond. In verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul says that the spiritual rock from which the people of Israel drank was the Christ. He uses this story to connect us straight to Jesus and to tell us that the symbolism of what's happening as Moses hits this rock is that Jesus is split and flowing from him is eternal life, is water that will lead you to never thirst again, as he told the woman at the well in John 4. The promise of salvation and the presence of God, the Son, in the providence of the rock that was split at Meribah and Massah is the Son of Jesus the one who is with Yahweh, who is himself God the Father, one and the same. If you don't see the parallels yet, Yahweh went to the rock of Horeb because he was on trial. Jesus went to the hill of Golgotha because he was on trial. Yahweh did not defend himself against the accusations of the Israelites. He didn't speak a word in his defense. Jesus never defends himself in the entire 48-hour period in which he is tried by both the Roman government and the Jewish Sanhedrin. Never speaks up, never defends himself, though he was totally innocent. Yahweh ends up being judged guilty by humanity when he had never wronged them. He didn't actually do any of the things that they think he did. Same is true for Jesus. Never once did he wrong anybody. He didn't break a single law. In fact, he reinterpreted the law so that there would be freedom on the earth, and it offended the religious elite so badly that they murdered him. Yahweh was struck with the staff of judgment, and he willingly submitted himself to that judgment. Jesus was nailed to a Roman cross, execution style, a death reserved for criminals, and he willingly submitted himself to that judgment. Yahweh ordained that Moses strike the rock at Horeb, and Yahweh ordained that Pontius Pilate and Herod Antipas strike Christ the rock for you and I. And that as these two rocks are split, the character of God would be made clear to you in a way that is winsome, that you would understand that your angry, white-bearded, Zeus-like God of the Old Testament is a poor picture of the salvation-oriented master of the universe who has never changed, who has always done whatever he has to to take on the judgment of his people to protect them, to guard them, and to lead them into life. Jesus is not God 2.0. He is the same. He has been the same. He is still the same today. In both cases, Yahweh and Jesus, God's innocence is never really in question. In both instances, the submission to human authority is a willing act on God's part because of his love. He's not obligated by anything else. He chose to substitute himself in the place of his people, even though they are evil and wicked. In both cases, humanity or just the people of Israel, none of us had done a thing in the world to convince God that he owed us this favor. We were not good, we were not right, we were not oriented toward righteousness, we weren't on our way. If we just had more time, we were going to figure it out. We were wrong and we were going to stay wrong until God took that judgment for us. In both cases, the sacrifice of God ultimately leads his people into life. That's the point. That's why we can get to Jesus in this story. And Jesus is the only solution to the propagating petrification of human hearts, the propagating grumbling and complaining that erode trust and give rise to movement out of and away from the way of Jesus. He is the rock, and he is split for you and I. I'll finish in this way. I'll tell you about a guy who died a long time ago. In 1756, a man named Augustus Toplady. Crazy last name. Don't know where he got it. I guess his parents. Augustus Toplady, he grew up in Great Britain when he was 16. He went to college. Things were different then, okay? He went to college in Dublin, Ireland. He was walking one day in the countryside, 
and he hears a gathering of Christian people, which he himself would have considered himself to be a Christian at that point, though he wasn't yet. He wanders into a barn where these people are gathered around this man. All we know is this man's name is Morris. We don't know if it's his first name or his last name, but the man can't read. He's illiterate in the story. Okay, he's leading a church service, though he can't even read the Bible that he's quoting from. This guy, top lady, who's a college student, wanders in the back of this service and stands there in this barn and hears Ephesians 2.13 preached and decides then and there that he will give his life to Jesus, that he's all in. Years later, he wrote this in his journal. He said, it's strange that I, who had so long sat under the means of grace in England, in other words, the church, that I should be brought nigh unto God in an obscure part of Ireland, amidst a handful of God's people who met together in a barn and under the ministry of one who could hardly spell his name. Surely this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous. Years later, Top Lady would write one of the all-time greatest hymns in church history called Rock of Ages. And I want to leave you today with the lyrics to that hymn. His words are as true for us as they were for Israel in Exodus 17, as they were for him in Ireland in the 1700s, because Jesus never changes. He says this, hear these words like they're fresh for you, please. He says, rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from both its guilt and its power. That's what double cure means. Set me free from it and let me let go of what it means in my life. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Vile I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Let me pray for you. God, today, all we have to say is thank you, I think, to you. Thank you, God, for your providence in our lives. I think sometimes that feels really vague, so if I can say it this way, Father, thank you for being willing as our God from the very beginning of all of this mess of human history to be our propitiation, to be the sacrifice, the substitute, the one who would bear the burden of our own mistakes, our errors, God, there's a ferocious tendency in us to self-center. It is a dominant tendency, an instinct in most of us to be egocentric, to be orbiting our own self, our own lives. And we need forgiveness from you for that. I ask today, God, that as we come now to your table, that you would prepare us to understand that as we eat of your body, as we drink of your blood, that this has been your character forever. That you are consistent, you are right, you are righteous, you are for us, God. We love you. We thank you today for the chance to hear your word. I ask God throughout the next seven days that it would be transformative in our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.